Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-host Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Good, Sam. How are you doing yourself? Not too bad, thank you. I've uh, I've had a bit of a blockbuster day. I've been watching the COVID inquiry taking place, which I think you know there's obviously some fascinating parallels, uh, which we were just discussing before the podcast about the level of transparency that democracies have versus the Chinese system. But I, I think it's interesting actually going through it. You can just see the chaos that was at the heart of government around that that period, which I think is. Really fascinating, and I wonder what people would draw conclusions of with regard to our policy towards China. If that's how our policy towards code was going, but you know, before we get into it, Steve, I guess I could just ask, what what what's your sort of comparison with how China's handling their their COVID inquiry? The COVID inquiry, Sam. There was no COVID. <laughs> let's let's just move completely on. Um, no, to get to get serious on it, I think I also find this absolutely fascinating. The the scrutiny. The transparency, you know, the WhatsApp messages that are being digged over, and you know, and that's what democracy is about. That's what decision making in the UK is all about. On the flip side, in China, we had three years of COVID, which, quite frankly, isolated the country, exacerbated lots of the geopolitical issues that we face now. Mm-hmm. Not to mention 2022 in regards to some of the economic pain that the country was faced and then is still facing. And the answer to the inquiry is it just lifted in overnight and it's get on with things and don't ask any more questions. And, you know, quite frankly, speaking to people in China, it's like amnesia. You know, those three years almost didn't happen. Move on. So there's the, the comparisons <laughs> between the UK and China. It's um, yeah. Chalk crazy. and cheese. Chalk crazy. and cheese. Chalk and cheese. Chalk literally. and cheese. Well, I think on the sort of topic of um, things we need to discuss, you know, the we had the passing last week of the former premier of China. I wondered if you, having spent sort of a decade there, you will have crossed paths with him or definitely worked under his influence. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, he clearly was an influential person in the Chinese system. I wondered if you could sort of give us a, a, a brief primer and, and view of the consequences of his passing. Yeah. So firstly, I'd, uh, we would like to offer our condolences on the passing of the, the former premier, Li Keqiang. I would love to say I had uh, run-ins with him, but uh, not really. We, we, as a British Chamber of Commerce, we attended one event in which he was speaking. And at the time, that was an enormous deal that we were in the room with him. Mm. Um, but just to kind of give a bit of background and kind of insight into, into, into Premier Li, he was essentially China's top economic official, and that was for over a decade. He died last week at the age of 68. Essentially, he was China's number two for 2013 to 2023. Uh, that was almost my entire time in China. So that's kind of when we talk about the economy, that's when we would talk about Premier Li Keqiang. He was a massive advocate for the private sector, private business, especially foreign business, foreign direct investment. He was a massive champion of the UK-China bilateral relationship. He would often consult with foreign chambers, which was quite rare for, for Chinese officials. Uh, we had it on good authority that he would read the British Chamber of Commerce's <laughs> China sentiment survey every year, or certainly read maybe the exact summary, good man. or would be certainly told um, <laughs> it had come out. Um, but he generally saw the value of improving market conditions, reforming the market. Now, I suppose moving into maybe a slight bit of speculation, but 
you know, and who really knows about the Chinese system, but mm. he essentially was the the successor to the former leader, Deng Xiaoping. And previously, just when I moved to China, you know, there was competition and challenging who would be the next premier. Would it be Xi? Would it be Li Keqiang? And you know, obviously, Xi was the one who, who won. Mm. But Premier Li was an economist, you know, market orientated reforms was his kind of ambitions. And considered by, you know, many of the population, certainly many of the foreign population, one of the smartest, most shrewdest politicians in China. So I genuinely think it's it's quite a big loss. I think it's quite sad also, as we're touching upon it, during the COVID period, he had to oversee the, the economy. And I think he was one of very few people who was vocal and as vocal as you can be mm. within the Chinese system, essentially around, you know, there is need for restrictions around people's safety, but don't destroy the economy over that. So, yeah, it, I think our condolences is to, to Premier Li Keqiang. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, look, just to look ahead for the podcast, we're going to be discussing the AI Summit, which is taking place this week, the AI Safety Summit, that is. A quick preview or discussion around the King's Speech, uh, which is upcoming next week. Steve, prepare yourself because I'm going to ask you what you'd like to see in there. And then we're very, very fortunate to have an interview with Henry Sanderson, who is a critical minerals and electric batteries expert. He's, he's written a brilliant book, which we'll include in the links down below. To kick off those three things, Steve, talk to me about the AI Safety Summit. So essentially, the AI Safety Summit is Rishi Sunak's pride and joy, his his pet project, it, it seems. I suppose from the, from the outside perspective, and again, when we're talking about AI regulation, it seems to just very firmly focus on risk. And for me, it seems like the catastrophic risk, the, the doomsday scenarios, kind of the stuff you see in movies, you know, the Terminator. But my understanding is it needs to be a differentiator as an AI Safety Summit. So that is the focus, is it's around risk. And the idea is that there will be a communique around AI safety regulations. But Sam, you're more of an expert on this than me. So kind of do you have any thoughts going into the summit or maybe predictions of what may be coming out of the summit? So in terms of predictions, the other day when you describe what it was like when officials met officials from the sort of UK China side or US China side, and you had those pre-agreed agenda points, my understanding is that's basically what we've got here. There'll be a communique which has been agreed Prior to the arrival of, of officials and dignitaries, Playbook reported that in, it was only in the last few weeks that an invitation was actually extended to Xi Jinping. Prior to that, it was a, a junior level invite. And there's still no full confirmation that China will send someone here, although the vice minister of science and technology is said to be coming. Again, we'll only know that on the day, basically. Um, diplomats I spoke to last week were of the view that many Asian leaders actually weren't particularly chuffed about the idea of hopping onto a round-the-half-globe plane trip for a day's uh, a day summit and then flying back again. That being said, it's been a pretty testy week in terms of some parts of the political the Tory party machinery trying to argue that China shouldn't be invited. My view, and I would say aligns with a lot of or the majority of people in this space who are actual experts, is that China should be invited. How else can you have a global AI safety summit if it's not global? But that's basically the sort of overview of what we're looking for. And we'll keep an eye on it. There'll be some interesting speeches to emerge, I'm sure. And uh, there are some interesting sideline events being held by Chinese think tankers as well and Chinese academics that'd be worth keeping an eye on. So Sam, we, we know there's some big notable names not attending. Biden, most probably Xi. There's also some big names attending. The general thinking is that there will be a communique signed on AI safety regulation. What that will look like, what will be in it, unclear. 
the, the kind of the real question, and this was voiced by former Prime Minister Liz Truss, essentially critiquing China's attendance, but also essentially saying, look, if China signs a communique, it means nothing. They're going to break the rules anyway. So how much can we kind of take that as a signed agreement, as something moving forward and something positive? Yeah, I, I have two thoughts on this. The first is that it's an incredibly defeatist attitude to take to diplomacy, full stop. If you go into diplomacy and you go into any engagement and your starting point is everything I do from this point onwards is completely redundant because I can't change that person's behavior or that country's behavior. That for me is is not a position of strength, that's a weakness. And I actually buy quite a lot into the argument that Ryan Haas from Brookings Institute put forward recently in an essay, which is that if you buy the view that there's a rivalry between the US and China going on right now, and, we, and we're aligned with the US, then it's in your absolute interest to try and do as many projects that involve the rest of the world with China as possible. And he basically says, you know, if I say to you, Steve, we're the two big rivals, and then there's the rest of the world that's looking for us. If I say, Steve and I are both going to work on AI safety together to make it as safe as possible for all of us, and you, representing China in this case, pull out that deal or break out that deal, that reflects badly on you. You lose face, you lose confidence, the wider people to, to believe that they can take what you're saying seriously. Whereas if I say, we're going to go at this alone, and Steve can do his own thing, we don't trust him. Well, that gives you all the wiggle room in, in the world you want. You can say, oh, the UK, the US didn't invite us. So again, my personal view on this on this is that I, I completely disagree with the trust logic to this. I, I think there's a reason why it's not widely shared. I think it's an incredibly defeatist attitude wrapped up in bravado. One final thing before maybe we move on to our main topic of this week's podcast is there's no parliament this week. <laughs> and that's because we'll be having a King's speech. And that's essentially the opening of the parliament by King Charles. And that'll take place uh, on the 7th of November. Essentially, this poses the government's policies and legislation. I imagine it's all domestically focused. But Sam, we live in an ideal world here on the <laughs> Beijing to Britain podcast. If we could have one ask that we would try to put into the King's speech, specifically around foreign policy, and maybe even going further around UK-China relations, what, what would that be? Or what would yours be? I think mine would probably be, we will siphon 5% of all GDP into the Beijing to Britain project to increase capability. <laughs> no, I think I, what I would love to see actually is some creative thinking around, um, and I'm going to credit this to a, a guy called Zach Spiro, who I've seen talk about this before, and he's explained it to me like I'm five and I still don't fully understand it. But the idea about releasing pensions, finding ways to invest pension funds in the UK into really interesting startups, obviously in a way that doesn't give them a massive amount of risk or or potentially lose too much money. But I think we've got some really interesting projects here that aren't getting the money they need. And if we want to be a science superpower and a power that doesn't have dependency on other things like that, we need to start investing that properly. I think that could be one interesting way of doing it, which is you know tangentially involved in the UK-China uh, space. But to flip it back on his head, Steve, beyond upping me to 10% of siphoning money, what would your <laughs> piece of legislation be? I actually think kind of aligning clusters and technological clusters is such a valuable mm. um so it's such a valuable proposition for the UK to move forward so so certainly agree with that if I would have one mine would be just quite simplistic and this might maybe antagonize some of those that have wrote the uh, the integrated review but for me it's it's just to find the UK's role in the world post brexit because I just think since returning back to the UK it's just very unclear and maybe that is, you know, that that policy has it, it is very clear, but it's not coherently uh, communicated. So as a nation, I would like us to be less reactive and more proactive 
about the strengths of our country, certainly when we're talking about foreign policy. Okay, well, look, let's get into the main segment of what today's interview, uh, today's podcast is all about. And that is an interview with Henry Sanson on critical minerals. But before we get there, I think it's worth quickly rehashing what's going on with our critical minerals, because we've done a lot, actually, uh, as talking about, you know, where do we stand in the world as global Britain? We've got a very active critical minerals bilateral push and campaign underway. I mean, just this week alone, um, as we, as, as you were saying to me, Steve, before we go into the podcast, Kemi Badenoch, the business and trade secretary, uh, was in Japan, where she signed a memorandum of understanding, with, I believe, uh, on critical minerals. And as we speak right now, business minister Nusrat Ghani is in Mongolia right now, uh, where she's undertaking a multiple day visit to strengthen UK-Mongolia relations and with a focus on critical minerals too. Look, I think it's important to note also when, when people ask, why should we be paying for Beijing to Britain? This is actually a great example. Three months ago in August, we flagged that we thought there was going to be an uptick in UK-Mongolia bilateral ties. It's the 60th anniversary of the relationship between two countries this, this year. And it seems to us that the UK is on a very strong campaign to diversify its critical mineral supply chains. Mongolia is extremely critical mineral rich and very keen to get private sectors involved in it. So when it comes to people taking potential strategic leads or business business leads from what we do, I think that's a pretty good example of it. But, but Steve, what are your sort of views on the critical mineral state of affairs as is? Well, before we get into the the interview with with Henry, I just thought one thing that I thought was really interesting to flag was last week in the Telegraph, Dominic Rab put out a report that the West must unite to stop China's stranglehold on critical minerals, which I thought sets up this this podcast perfectly. Um, so let's just quickly get into kind of critical minerals, rare earths. They're essential when we're talking about advanced technology, specifically electrical cars, solar panels, wind energy, essentially any renewable energy source. Basically, all governments, including the United Nations, European Union, China, have the same view. We need to increase the supply. We need to increase the rate of production. We need to get the raw materials, refine them so that we can combat climate change. China is obviously not the only player, but very, very clearly, they are the most dominant global uh, player. China has really mastered the process of both extraction, but also the critical part of refinement, the value-add part of refinement, and that all sits back in China. Um, They know how to turn a lump of rock into something that can go into a car. So I just kind of want to get into some of the strengths of China, and I think just kind of putting it in percentages helps. So this has also been in research for this uh, episode, Sam, going back and having a chemistry lesson, and I only had a B in science from GCSE, so it's been tough. (laughs) China last year accounted for 98% of the world's production of gallium, Gallium, for those who don't know, I didn't, is in circuits, semiconductors, LEDs, and they own 98% of that market. 60% of the world's lithium that goes in batteries and lubricants and greases. China processes more than 60% of cobalt, alloys, engine turbines, and 45% of nickel, which goes in wiring. So you can sort of see they have quite a stranglehold, or I don't want to say stranglehold, but maybe domination of this market. Hmm. And that's why I think it's going to be really fascinating to hear from Henry. So look, to answer some of those queries and some and to put some context around those sort of facts you've set out there, Steve, we were really pleased to speak to Henry Sanderson, who formerly wrote for the Financial Times, covered commodities there and critical minerals, and is now the publisher of a fantastic book on electric batteries, critical minerals, supply chains. You really can't find someone who communicates such a complex thing so clearly. And Steve and I had a great time asking questions that we get asked the whole time. So um, 
Henry, if we could kick off with what might seem to be quite a simple question, but what are critical minerals in this sense? And is it the same for every country? And is it the same thing when we say critical minerals as rare earths? Yeah, so thanks thanks so much for having me. And that's a great question. So so critical minerals, uh, basically, they're minerals that you know have few or, or no substitutes, uh, strategic uh, or somewhat limited, and, and most importantly, increasingly concentrated in terms of um, extraction and uh, processing. But you know, there's uh, there's lists from Canada, the U.S., the European Union, the U.K., South Korea, Japan, etc., India. Um, so they all do slightly vary, and of course, technologies change and new minerals become more important. But there are also minerals that are that are gaining greater attention, such as copper, that you know may not be um, it's such a, a short supply, or at least there's there's big industrial markets for these minerals. But actually, they're considered more and more critical because of then their uses in low carbon uh, energy. So there are these different, I guess, segments when you think about critical minerals. So, so to pick up on a point there, you sort of specify that there are different countries and they have the, some of them have their own approaches to critical minerals, some of them don't. Obviously, the UK has its own critical mineral strategy, and I, I think also perhaps a revised uh, critical mineral strategy too. Uh, we can come on to that in, in a second, but obviously, given the nature of what we discussed in this podcast, where does China sit in this space? And I think built into that as well, one of the things we were discussing a couple of weeks back now was artificial intelligence and how there are some private sector companies that almost act like sovereign states in this space because they're building the technology so fast. So if there's China and the US in the critical mineral space, are there any companies as well that are effectively taking on that sovereign type state themselves with regards to this? Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I'm not so sure about the sovereign um, sort of uh, status, but basically... And China is extremely dominant um, in a lot of the mining for the critical minerals, the offtake for them. So that's very important, right? Where do the flow flows of these minerals go? And they basically all go to China. And that's because China is so dominant in the processing. But not only the processing, in actually turning these minerals into products, right? Because there's no point shipping lithium to the UK tomorrow. We've got nothing to do with it, right? Um, so you need to build out the industries uh, to actually use these minerals. So I think a key point is there's a lot of talk about critical minerals, but a mineral by itself is is useless, right? You need to have the supply chain and the industry. And that's what China has. It has um, a lot of the raw materials sort of locked up uh, through offtakes or, or investments. And then it has the processing, but then it has the final products, the batteries, the rare earth magnets, and then the electric vehicles, right? Or, or et cetera, et cetera. So it has the whole supply chain from mine until final product. Of course, China's domestically doesn't have great geological deposits, so it does import a lot of these raw materials. So like oil and gas, it's still reliant on overseas um, markets, on overseas um, countries for imports of these raw materials. But they do have they do have the whole uh, supply chain. In terms of companies, it is really interesting because there are there are a number of Chinese private companies um, who have been very aggressive in this space, have been more capitalist than the uh, the Americans, have, have expanded rapidly, moved incredibly fast, um, and they're the ones that really dominate the, the supply chain behind your electric vehicle. So it's not the sort of big, lumbering, state-owned uh, companies. It's, it's quite fast-moving private companies. And these companies are super keen to move into Europe. They already are moving into Europe, and they're moving into other countries to try and access the US market. So... You know, it's it's interesting because China, 
you know, I guess two decades ago had this going out policy. And initially we saw these state-owned companies um, sort of try to do that, but they were, were never very successful. But when you look at clean energy, you have these kind of ruthless uh, private companies and their and they're, they're worst competitors are not, are not the worst, they're, they're, they're each other, right? Um, they, they compete fiercely with each other. Critical minerals seems a fairly brutal industry. It's not an easy sector to operate in, not easy countries or locations that China are operating. So on the one hand, kind of we bemoan the high level of dependency on China around minerals and then the growing concern of um, what this means for energy security. But on the other, is this genuinely a sector that kind of like the UK or the US actually wants to take over and wants to dominate? It seems that it would just draw too much you know, attention around ESGs or human rights. So are we happy for China to literally do the dirty work? And then maybe a little bit later down the line, we come in with more responsible sourcing of critical minerals? Or is that just kind of maybe too simplistic? I think that's um, a little too simplistic because that was what we were happy with. If you look at the way China got its dominance, you know, basically the West was very happy to offshore a lot of the the processing of these minerals, which is dirty, which is energy intense uh, to China. And we all know China's advantages two decades ago were, you know, low labor costs, low environmental standards, etc. So that's what attracted all these businesses. And, and the West funded a lot of these businesses, you know, Western private equity, investment banks, lawyers, you name it. We helped we helped create China as a leader in uh, clean energy in, in many ways. But now now the political thinking has changed, right, where we we realized that, um, you know, the, the global markets, the globalization that we supported uh, led to markets where China now has 90 plus percent dominance. Right. And that's now become a, a, a serious risk. Um, so I think that the political will now is that we have to try and de-risk or diversify. Um, so if you think of, of doing that, um, it is it is ideal to have some uh, critical mineral mining of your own or at least within your within your allied um, countries, because otherwise, you know, unless you have all parts of the supply chain, you're going to be reliant on, on China again. And while you're right that a lot of critical mineral mining happens in Democratic Republic of Congo, other, other places, actually Australia is the biggest producer of lithium, right? And they're hardly um, the wild back and beyond, right? They're, they're one of our allies. So Australia is a big producer, Canada, you know, can potentially be a big producer, Chile, Argentina, you know, these are all places that have significant production. So, so what the West needs to do is try to lock up some of this material and then develop the industries and the supply chain to use this material. And I think that's what, what you see the UK and other countries doing is trying to um, create a network of, of these uh, resource-rich countries so that when we have built out the industries, um, we can we can get minerals from from these countries. So, so I think it's not so much that that you know we're happy for for China to go into these countries. Um, it, it's it's a bit of that um, in countries like DRC, um, where the West has got more risk averse, companies have got more risk averse, and, and in a way that the whole ESG movement perhaps has been slightly detrimental to to investing in these countries because companies are scared of of any uh, backlash right and um we often have prioritized greenwashing over actually uh doing things that will actually advance the clean energy economy and and that can sometimes involve mining and, and processing that 
may not be perfect, but look at the end product. The end product is reducing fossil fuel use. So I, I think the whole uh, problem with a lot of the ESG movement was the rise of greenwashing and, and the fear of, of doing anything that could have risks attached to it. So you just kind of mentioned that China accounts for the majority or certainly leads in certain aspects of, of uh, critical minerals, it accounts for 70% of, of uh, the, the world's supply of cobalt, I believe, 98% of gallium. I'm not even sure that what that is, but it sounds quite important. Clearly, you just cannot cut China out of the critical minerals industry and the supply chain, specifically the supply chain. China is also pushing for green, renewable, sustainable energy transition. So is the the rest of the world. We need costs to come down in this sector so it's more affordable for the end user. So, you know, we need China in this in this supply chain to bring down the costs. And a lot of that supply chain is just dominated by China. So, again, maybe a rather simplistic question. Is China weaponizing critical minerals and its use? You've said that the, the Europeans and the, the US are stepping up in this sector, but China still dominates. I think that's right. I think you're already seeing it, right, where um, last week China introduced restrictions for, for graphite exports. No one really knows how this is going to be managed, but they have a complete dominance in, in things like graphite um, in the rare earth um, elements, as you mentioned. So, of course, if we go further to start to, to continue um, a trade war with China, to provoke China, of course, they're going to look at what they what they can use in return. And I think these restrictions on graphite exports came in after Biden administration, you know, strengthened restrictions on semiconductor exports to China. So we do see the beginnings of a, a tip for tat, tat here. And you're exactly right. Um, China has the upper hand when it comes to clean energy. There's just no, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, China... China doesn't want to kill its companies' access to global markets because they see markets like Europe as a huge opportunity. And they also don't want to encourage competitors to, to spring up, right? So, um, But if you look at what they did in Rare Earths before, where a, a decade ago they cut off supply to Japan, prices went, went sky high. A lot of Western competitors started up projects, but then China crashed the price again and, and killed a lot of those projects. So... We shouldn't underestimate how China can use its dominance, and it may not be the most obvious way, right? Price is 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 a key way of killing competition, right? By by um, over investing, over expanding, uh, using policy to to influence prices. So for the West, the way China uses its leverage may not be um, may not be obvious, and it may just be uh, by by killing competition. And we in the West have to think about. What sectors do we want to subsidize to protect our supply chains and, and, and which sectors not? Because I think it is going to be brutal. I think the competition is going to be brutal. And we shouldn't underestimate the fact that China has this dominance. And they're not just going to sit back and say, OK, you know, you startups in the, U, the Europe and the US, you can you can have a great business now that they're not going to do that. So, so I think, yeah, I think the ways they can use their dominance are, are multifaceted. I often read about bilateral or multilateral sort of countries coming together and agreeing a new framework for critical minerals, uh, whether that's the UK and Japan or whether that's the UK and America's different accords. And they'll always have a little part there saying, we're going to work together to get critical minerals. And that tends to be, in my experience so far from reading, among Western countries sort of agreeing with each other that that's how they're going to do it. 
in, in simple terms, if there's a, a, a finite amount of critical minerals then, and as you say, a finite amount of mines mining them and then processing facilities back in China, are, are these Western countries jumping the queue, as it were, among other countries that are also trying to access those critical minerals? Uh, you know, to, to push on that slightly, when, when we sign a new critical minerals agreement with a country, who is losing out in the queue, as, if, if that is how it exists? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think, um, you know, China could potentially be losing out if if the political will is so strong that that if you as a is you as a, a, a new mining company are looking for to junior mining companies or new mining companies will look to uh, sell their product in advance right through an off take to to help them finance the development of their mine. If the political pressure is so strong that uh, selling off take to a Chinese company is, is not politically acceptable anymore. And in Canada, we've seen the Canadian government order Chinese companies to divest from mining companies. So if that's the case, then yes, they will prioritize trying to uh, sell their supply to, to Western companies, to, to Western battery producers or electric vehicle producers. And I think, yes, China does, does lose out in that equation. And I think potentially that's quite worrying for China, because as I said earlier, they need all these imports of critical minerals, along with oil and gas, to feed the giant industrial machine that they've created. But yet they, they see themselves being, as you said, like locked out of global supply chains, potentially by all these political agreements between Western and uh, East Asian countries or democratic countries. So, yes, they're, they're in a tricky situation, potentially. On the other hand, so that's, that forces them to go to um, other countries in, in Africa or, or elsewhere that perhaps would be riskier or perhaps would be more pro-China. And I think that's why we see China's coming out very strongly that they're on the side of developing countries, right? Uh, through the recent BRI meeting, they want to be, uh, you know, leader of the global South or, or on the same side as the global South. And I think part of that is that they want to have access to what the global South can offer, which is which is um, the minerals. Um, the second point is, yes, uh, these these agreements between uh, Western countries and, and mineral-rich countries, they all sound great, but the actual problem is that we don't have the uh, supply chains to buy, to, to actually do anything with these minerals. So that's the issue, right? So uh, we need to build out these supply chains because otherwise uh, the resource-rich country could, could feel like they want to diversify away from China. They want to fulfill the political objectives of, of these agreements, but the only companies showing up with, with a checkbook or with money uh, are Chinese. And I think we've seen that in Chile recently, where Chile has a strategy of, of giving lithium at a lower price, at, at a much lower price to companies who will build processing or other parts of the supply chain within Chile. And we've seen this year that the only two companies that are doing that are BYD and Qingshan, both from China. Yet Chile is a uh, has an FTA with the US, so it's in a perfect position for the US Inflation Reduction Act to be eligible under the Inflation Reduction Act. Yet yet we see Chinese companies coming in and building these plants. And that's because they have the expertise, they have the money. And as I said earlier, they're moving fast. They're moving lightning fast. One of the things that fascinates me is Steve and I are often privy to conversations taking place among politicians and then conversations taking place among private sector companies. And that often shows a big gulf in terms of where the thinking is at. And 
one of the things I find quite fascinating is with the critical minerals uh, conversation politically here in the UK, you see two or three companies mentioned the whole time. Like we've got Cornish lithium, we've got green lithium here. But if, if the lithium processing is effectively taking place in China, regardless of us mining it here, at any stage of that, how we actually manage to diversify the supply chain properly on a sort of coherent level. If, if, it's, if it is the case that, as you say, like brilliant, I've mined 400 tons of lithium well, <laughs> we've not got anywhere to refine it properly here yet at scale. Yes, it's a good point. And I think, you know, I did say that earlier, but on the other hand, you've got to start somewhere. And I think what, what Cornish Lithium and, and other projects in the UK um, aim to do, they're obviously aware of that. So they actually aim to process the lithium in the UK. And there's another company, Green Lithium, that's building a processing plant um, in the UK. So they aim to um, to avoid going to China for, for that step. And then the next step is um, we need we need uh, people to buy that process lithium. And and actually, um, in Europe, we do see more investment in, in, in those what's called cathode production, producing the battery materials. So we do see that. So so it is happening. It is happening. And, and, and people are aware of of the problem of, of, of having uh, China so heavily involved. I, I do think that despite what I say, like making a start on it is, you know, some diversification is is better than than nothing. What we have to figure out is that the whole question is we're trying to subsidize this sector. Uh, we have to figure out what, what our aims are and, and what, we're, what we're looking to achieve. For instance, um, if, if the lithium, let's say, comes from Cornwall, is processed in the UK, is turned into a battery um, in Europe, but then the vehicle's um, anode, which is the other part of the battery, comes from China, or the rare earth magnet comes from China. Are we happy with with that result, right? In, in the sense that you're never going to have 0% China this decade in, in your electric vehicle or solar or other technologies. So are, are we happy to subsidize to get um, a slight de-risking? I guess that's, that's, that's the question. But we absolutely should start somewhere. And, and the key to a lot of these plants in the UK is they're offering a more sustainable, more green uh, option and, and potentially, um, you know, more sustainable options. So what we need to see happen is for automakers and others to to be willing to pay more for a more sustainable option. You know, that, that will help the West um, massively uh, uh, if we can sort of level level that playing field. And, and there may be advantages in the fact that China is the incumbent uh, with all this all these assets and plants that are built on old technology, right? And we can potentially uh, leapfrog that and, and build cleaner and, and greener technology, which could help us. It, it won't be easy, but I think if we can shift the system so that people will pay for a more sustainable option, uh, that would be good. And, and look at what Europe's doing with carbon border adjustment, these sort of policies. I think we're heading in, in that direction. Uh, clearly, as someone who follows the UK conversation around critical minerals very closely, do you have the view then that we are taking the right strategic decisions at this current moment? And on top of that, are you seeing anything from the Labour Party that would indicate to you that we're taking, they're thinking about this in a coherent, strategic manner? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, yes, you know, the UK set out critical mineral strategy and they've, you know, they've been clear about, um, you know, how they, how they want to um, move forward with that strategy. And actually, um, you know, Benchmark, where I work, was involved with that as well. Our, our CEO, uh, Simon Moores, was involved. I think, um, you know, the issue is for Europe as a whole and the UK is we don't have the the money that the US has, that the US is, is throwing at these industries. And I think 
The problem is a lot of companies are are looking at the US more now or moving investment to the US because of the uh, the attractive subsidies um, that are available there. So I think it all comes down to a question of money, right? And uh, how much how much can the government support these sectors? And the same is true in the European Union. You know, where, where's the money, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, always, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that the UK, so yeah, it's got it's got the strategy. It's, it's doing the right thing. But you know, what what kind of money and resources do we have available, um, and where do we want to uh, invest them? You know, it's interesting that um, you know, you know, Labour's considering um, a, a green bank, right? Um, mm. I mean, you probably know more than me about that. But um, you know, that's that's also interesting in terms of what it would fund and uh, what kind of projects they would look to get involved with. Um, I think you know, for the UK, we have a lot of potential, as we talked about with with these projects. We have a lot of minerals that we haven't looked for uh, for so many years, so we might have more uh, deposits there. But but you know we're not going to be able to do everything um, in the UK, so we have to think about where our advantage lies and and, and where can we um, we can uh, best um, use our advantages. Um, the other big problem, just for Europe as a whole and and the UK, is scaling up. You know we may have uh, great startups or great ideas at the universities, but how do we um, how do we actually scale up these technologies? And this is a fundamental mm. problem with with clean energy innovation. This is something that. Bill Gates is trying to tackle through his breakthrough energy. Um, you know, how do you actually, you know, scale up these technologies? It's just so much harder than software companies uh, or, or, or things like yeah. that, right? So, so that's the fundamental challenge. Once we've got it, I do think innovations that are more sustainable and potentially lower cost are, are the way to go. But how do you actually scale those up? And that's that's a critical issue. Um, I mean, just finally on on Europe. I mean, we do have a lot of advantages uh, in terms of. I was recently in Sweden. They have a lot of hydropower in the north of Sweden. And that's where some of this industry is being built because you've got um, cheap and, and green power. Uh, so it's looking for those kind of advantages that we can we can build on. Henry, thank you so much for your time. That is absolutely fascinating. I will link everything in the reading notes for this podcast episode for people to root you out and find your work. So look, Steve, what do you think your sort of one key takeaway from that is that you will keep in mind going forward on critical minerals? My one key takeaway is countries, companies absolutely have to de-risk from China. They're too dependent on this market. COVID demonstrated that. It's generally a security risk on, on one hand, but decoupling is almost impossible. Uh, you know, governments stand up in parliament and say we need to de-risk, but how on earth when the supply chain, 100% of some supply chains sit in China? I think the value add process is the refinement part, which which sits in China. So yes, we can go extract more minerals. Do we want to? I'm not sure. But how how on earth we do that? I mean, you're going to be having to pour hundreds of millions, billions to to de-risk. And, and there is the challenge, I think, of most countries. I think the thing that I'm still left not fully understanding, actually, is if there's a queue of countries that want to access critical minerals, is it that every single time we see an MOU sign between the US and X country or the UK and X country or vice versa, that those countries skip the queue when it comes to extracting, let's say, lithium from the West Coast of Australia? I, I still am not fully aware or I don't fully understand how that works. And I'd be very interested to see what a lot of countries from the so-called global south would have to say about what they might view as hoarding of, of critical minerals. I think it's a really underdeveloped and underexplored place in this sort of the UK Westminster um, stage, actually. 
Um, obviously, we're coming at this from a maybe a UK perspective, UK-China perspective, but the majority of these critical minerals do sit in these developing nations, whether it be Africa or, as, as Henry said, in um, some Latin American countries. So it would actually be really interesting to get their perspectives on what's happening. Yeah, well, listen, if you're running a country in South America right now or across Africa, please get in touch. We're always keen to hear from you. <laughs> um, so to, maybe to, to wrap things up then, Sam, do you have any final thoughts? Is there any other areas that you think we should uh, explore this week? Yeah, of course. So, you know, we're, we're talking on a Monday evening. Um, this week is going to see a couple of interesting earnings results or sort of quarterlies. We've got HSBC who reported today. They have put out what looked to be okay results. And what is your team on the ground in China telling you about when they think the commercial real estate crisis is, is going to end, is going to bottom out? Uh, at least is 2024 a, a realistic prospect, Noel? What is your, what is your sense at this point? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the market, the commercial real estate market in China has, has had a huge policy correction. And I think we are at the bottom of the market, but it will take quite a while for that market to recover and regain momentum. So I'm not expecting a massive reversal in that sector in the next 12 months or so, but I do expect it to be a gradual improvement from where we are. I am encouraged by some of the policy measures that were announced recently. They will take time to have effect. So I'm not expecting a rapid turnaround, uh, but I do think that we're at the bottom of the, uh, the market and we'll now have to have a slow recovery and I think that is a very determined slow recovery because I don't think that the authorities would have done what they've done with policy correction then to do a quick reversal from here. Uh, we have BP reporting this week. BP have a huge China presence. They've had that for a couple of decades. That'll be interesting to see if there's anything in their sort of risk assessment that, that touches on that sort of stuff. And we've got BT Group who are also reporting, I think, on Thursday. And what's particularly interesting, Steve, about BT Group in this in this context is it was reported earlier this year that BT Group had been holding war games uh, sort of regarding a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And by the way, they're, they're not certainly not the only major FTSE 100 that I've heard of doing, uh, doing this. There was a report the other day about a couple of banks doing it, but I've heard privately that other people and other groups doing this too. So sort of fascinating that that is now being incorporated into their strategic thinking. And I wonder if we see any of that reflected in their sort of accounting alongside of it. The final thing to say is please do like and subscribe to the podcast, whichever channel you, you listen to us on, Apple, Spotify, Substack. It really helps us to kind of get heard um, and get a, a wider audience. And please also leave comments and questions. We're always looking to engage with the audience. So thanks, Sam, and look forward to next week. Thanks so much, Steve. Looking forward to it. 